What is up, guys? Welcome to this episode of the American Deciding Factor. Uh, you have me, myself here, Isaiah Woody, here with Cameron Hunt. And if you haven't seen the other episode that is going to be posted in conjunction with this, which is three solutions that we can do to help lower gas prices in America, we just finished recording that one. They'll be kind of posted together. They'll be sister episodes of each other. Uh, you should go check that one out as well. Either watch it before or after, uh, preferably before, but either one works. And so Cameron headed that show and gave us three good reasons uh, or three good solutions that we could implement to help lower the gas prices in America. And in this episode, we will be specifically going through the response to uh, the leftist idea or the, the critics uh, who critique those three solutions. And we'll be going through and making main points to uh, kind of combat those. And so the critics' main points that we're going to be addressing uh, is that we should make the switch to renewable energy rather than oil and gas, and that, uh, number two, oil and gas are bad for the environment and should not be used. And point number three, we're going to be addressing that Biden is currently overseeing 9,000 oil permits. This is a big talking point right now for the left, and we're going to be combating that and giving you the tools to help uh, beat your friends on that conversation. So stick along, and we'll get right into this. What is up, guys? So thank you for joining us for What's this up, episode. So we're going to be going through on this episode the response to the critics. What are the critics' main point? What are their talking points when it comes to oil and gas? What are their, quote-unquote, solutions that we know are not actually solutions? Uh, so let's, let's take this from the top. Number one, uh, their main talking point is to make the switch to renewable energy. This is a huge talking point that we're hearing a lot of the um, elitists or insiders or the administration make that we should switch to renewable energy rather than depleting our oil and gas and uh, stinking up the environment, right? Right. Yeah, just go – what do you mean, Isaiah? Just go buy a Tesla. I mean, it's not that yeah, hard. You can't, like, you can't just, afford, just go buy one. You like, can't afford a $60, $70 tank of gas. Just go buy a $50,000 car. Yeah, it, I mean, it's pretty simple. Like, it's it's like homeless people, you know? Like, just go get a house. Like, obviously, exactly. that's the freaking issue. <laughs> so, uh, when we address oh, this, let's get into first, what kind of renewable energy does the left want? Uh, well, the Green New Deal is a perfect place to look when we're looking for that answer because the Green New Deal had a ton of co-sponsors in the House, and uh, it was a very – it kind of set the standard and put forth the main goal of the progressive agenda when it comes to energy and what we should be looking for uh, in a Green New Deal. So, the main goal of the plan – uh, is to bring U.S. greenhouse gas emissions down to net zero and meet 100% of power demand in the country through clean, renewable, and zero-emission energy sources by the year 2030, which, by the way, a different episode for a different day, but this sounds very familiar to the benchmark and the goals of the World Economic Forum, which, again, I said we will get into in a different episode, but some, some scary stuff going on there with that. So... One of their biggest forms of energy that they love to talk about is wind. Well, let's let's dive into wind a little bit. Wind is dangerous to the wildlife. It kills birds and bats. It messes with their migratory patterns and all that sort of stuff. You have to haul all that stuff out there and plant it, and it takes up physical space in their habitat. It's also noisy. Uh, it can get very loud. Um, it's expensive not only to install but to maintain. This is big, huge metal that we're hogging like pulling it out into the middle of nowhere yeah. basically the, the best like we talked talked about this before one of the craziest things if 
if the windmills, if it gets too cold and they freeze up, you have to fly helicopters with people out there to go, like, literally unfreeze them. Mm-hmm. Go thaw and them out. you have to go use fossil fuels to make your renewable energy work. Like, how awesome is that? How beautiful. Yeah. And so, number four, and this is the talking point that you hear from a lot of people um, on our side of the aisle, is that they're inconsistent. Uh, they suffer with what people in the energy community, I guess you could say, call intermittency. And intermittency is the idea that it's not a consistent and reliable form of energy. It needs a backup energy reserve for when the wind dies down because obviously the wind's not blowing all the time. So it's faulty in that sense um, big time. Same thing with solar. Uh, Another thing that they love is solar. Well, let's get into solar as well. Solar is expensive. It is also inconsistent. Um, It's also very expensive to store. It has a specialized battery that it needs, uh, these lithium batteries, that uh, we could get into, and um, I will get into that in my next point, but they're very difficult to move once they're installed. Once again, they take up a lot of physical space uh, in the environment, and that could, in some ways, in some areas, displace the wildlife or whatnot, and it uses rare earth uh, minerals, just like lithium, uh, which is involved in the batteries, and then there's other rare earth minerals in the panels themselves. So let's get into lithium batteries for a second. Lithium, if you do not know, is uh, a natural earth element. It must be mined for, if you have a phone, which I'm sure you do, if you have a smartphone, uh, if you look, your smartphone will say lithium ion battery. Um, it'll say it somewhere. If it doesn't say it in the box that your phone came with, I'm sure you can find it in your phone, in your settings somewhere. But our phones use lithium ion batteries. Um, the electric vehicles like Tesla and all that sort of stuff, that's lithium batteries. Uh, solar panels use lithium batteries. And lithium is an earth element that must be mined for. Uh, and if you don't, if you have a computer or phone right next to you right now, look up um, lithium mines and you will be shocked at how massive those mines are. And remind yourself that you have to get diesel, diesel uh, vehicles into those mines to be able to pull all of that lithium out, uh, which is much dirtier um, for the environment. Yeah than the renewable energies that they're wanting. And it's also, it just takes up a bunch of space. It's a huge chunk cut out of the earth. There's pictures of them set the, up they next can to never towns. Be, they can never be refilled. Like once it's yeah. this giant, it looks like, it looks like, looks like a, meteor a giant hit meteor hit the earth. And once it's there, it never goes away. Yeah. Like you talk about bad for the environment. Uh, that's it right there. Mine. Yeah. There's pictures of them next to towns and they swallow up the towns. They're the, they're the same size as a town. They're huge. Um, so it's very harmful to the environment to extract this lithium, these rare earth elements, and it gives China an economic power. If you did not know, China is sitting on, literally sitting on, the rare earth minerals that we need to be able to produce a lot of our batteries. From 2014 to 2017, China exported 80% of our rare earth minerals to the United States. This gives them a, a huge economic upper hand. Uh, it gives them something that they can uh, hold over our heads and use and leverage whenever they see fit. But so what do they not have? Oil. They Very don't important. have any oil. Japan found that out. Yeah. So now let's get into, well, what are the alternatives then? That what is the right want? Because I don't think that it's fair to say that the right just does not want clean energy. I think there is an argument to be made that people on the right are not against renewable energy. We're not against uh, clean energy, so to speak, but we're just for different types of this clean energy. So one that's a really huge, that has a lot of support 
on the right is nuclear energy. Uh, you'll hear a lot of people on the right talk about this. It's carbon free. It has a very small land footprint. It doesn't take much room. It doesn't take up much space. It can typically be put in a suburb or an urban area. Um, it has a very high power output, so it's able to meet the energy demands of the country. It's very reliable, uh, can consistently be kept up. Uh, but the only issues with it is that uranium is also a earth mineral. It's non-renewable, and it also must be mined for. Uh, just like the lithium would be, and it has some pretty high upfront costs to get it started because you're talking about a pretty serious and pretty risky game that you're playing here. But um, it can definitely um, give you a big upper hand if you use it correctly. And the one big downside of this would be the solid and liquid nuclear waste that must be disposed of properly and handled properly. And there's plenty of ways that people are coming up with to try and help um, – find solutions for what we can do with that radioactive material. There's people that talk about putting it in between plexiglass, and so that's a solution, but I don't know. Uh, you have to dump all of this somewhere uh, safely. And then any malfunctions uh, with the nuclear facilities, they're, they're rare, they're very rare, uh, but they can be catastrophic. Um, but there's some archaeological advancements that have been made to try and mitigate those risks of uh, catastrophic failure. Yeah, like the one I always like to talk about is people, or people like to say, they're like, oh, well, look what happened in the Soviet Union with yeah, Chernobyl. Chernobyl. And it's like, okay, yeah, but also that was like 50 years ago. You know, I'm pretty sure it was like 50, it was like 50 or 40 years ago. The technology was way worse. And also you have to remember, in a place like the United States, the regulation for nuclear already is going to be so high, like, what happened in the Soviet Union, the test that they should not have been doing, like, that would never be allowed to occur in the United States, right? Um, and also our technology has become much more advanced, and people are like, oh, well, what about um, what about the thing in Japan, you know, a tsunami hit there, and then, uh, and then you know, it, a lot, or it was like some radiation uh, leaked out of the plant because of that. It's like, yeah, well... One, there's kind of a simple solution for that. It's, you know, we need to put our power plants in places like that... Nebraska. <laughs> well, not, not always there, but also, you know, in places that aren't going to be liable, yeah. li like, liable for stuff like that. Like, you need to try and, like, lower the risk for that as much as possible. But yeah, also, um, where it was, uh, like, that one in uh, Japan, like, it, it was not near as bad as Chernobyl. So, like you said, malfunctions are rare, and they can be catastrophic, but... They can not, be we need to we need to be we need to emphasize the rare portion because it's not just like rare it's like you know very 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 small chance right yeah. and it's the same thing we we run the same risk with things like you know oil Driving your car to work yeah because or oil you know like there's been oil spills before too right but we're not just gonna stop using it so uh, that needs to be emphasized right it's yeah. rare there's plenty of nuclear power plants in America. Um, just not as many as would n say be needed to uh, meet the energy demands of the entire country. But there are nuclear plants in America, and you haven't heard anything bad about them. They're running just fine. And so uh, that kind of wraps up nuclear. So now let's look into hydro energy. This is one that, as I've looked into more, I have grown pretty fond of, and I think it would be a good solution. So well, it's been around forever too. You got to yeah. remember things like you know oh, yeah. the mills. So. Yeah, and sawmills. I mean, they would just. Uh, like the lumber, the lumber companies, they would just uh, use the streams to their advantage, and they would, anytime they cut trees, they would put the, uh, the, like, I don't know, it's not 
so it's a processing facility. That's what it is. They put their processors downstream from a lake. And they would just throw them, throw the logs in the in the yeah. river and just let it carry it down. I mean, this is something that is well, very also, ancient. Yeah, yeah, but also like you know, like they would they, use, the mills, they would use yeah. mill like we would use mills to grind, you know, uh, seeds and stuff. And grain, yeah. You, yeah, I mean, lots yeah. of things. But anyways, people have been using water forever for Absolutely. all sorts of things because it so, works. Hydro is uh, the most widely used form of reliable and renewable energy, uh, and reasonably so. It's inexpensive in the long run. It has a somewhat high startup cost, but uh, in the long run, it pays for itself times over. Uh, it can be produced domestically. We can use all of the waterways that we have here at home in order to continually produce this uh, energy domestically. So we can nationalize the market, so to speak. Um, it can also be used to irrigate crops, so uh, the leftover water uh, after it is used or after we pump it uh, somewhere, um, it's not. there's nothing wrong with it. It's not polluted water. It's still clean water, and uh, that can be another great source for using crop irrigation and uh, stuff like that. It's a great source of fresh water. Um, it's also a great source of clean and renewable energy, uh, which is why we're talking about it. Um, it is a dispatchable source, meaning that we can produce more of it when we need more of it, and we can also relax on it and stop producing more if our demands are met. Um, so in that term, in those terms, we can kind of control it a little bit more. Uh, it is able to meet our energy demands if used properly. And uh, the only downsides, though, would be that you have different types of setups with hydro. So you can have what you call a pump setup and a pump storage system, um, and those can disrupt the natural flow of water. So in that way, it can be kind of intrusive into the natural environment. However, that kind of stuff can be offset with run-of-river setups, wave energy setups, which is very worth looking into, uh, and tidal power setups. So all of those can help mitigate those um, Intrusions like disrupt, the natural, disrupting the, nat yeah. the natural flow, yeah. Yeah. So um, it also, another downside is it kind of relies on local hydrology. So if you have a drought or excess rain, um, obviously that can kind of play a factor with hydro. So that kind of wraps up that point of renewable energy. So let's get into uh, the second point, which is that oil and gas are bad for the environment and that they just should not be used. Um the main point here is transitioning away uh, from – this is from Thomas Friedman uh, in a New York Times column. If I'm not mistaken, uh, Thomas Friedman was Thomas Sowell's tutor. I have no idea. I think I, think I have that right. Anyways, I have no idea. But uh, he says transitioning away from fossil fuels would require the government to raise prices on them, introduce higher energy standards, and undertake a massive industrial project to scale up green technology. Well, what are we seeing today? In America, government is raising the prices on fossil fuels and oil and natural gas. They're introducing higher energy standards, uh, which is included in the policy that we're going to get into in point three. And they're undertaking a massive industrial project to upscale the green technology. Think uh, Green New Deal, which thankfully was cut off and was dead. Think uh, the Build Back Better program that they're trying to push through. All of this sort of stuff uh, is what Thomas Friedman is talking about. So... The main issue here with oil and gas being bad is CO2 pollution. That is the main talking point. That is what the focus is on. And the biggest thing about it is that CO2 affects the temperature of the world. And this is where, if you listen to the last episode or the other episode, the sister episode to this, 
we talked about how the rhetoric has changed from global warming to climate change and this is where that comes in so does co2 affect the temperature there are multiple charts that show very strong correlation between co2 emissions and the temperature of the surrounding areas and while correlation does not always equal causation we can uh, kind of safely say that there's a positive relationship between the two if you look at the charts um, however if you look at the charts one thing that a lot of people want to gloss over very it's very blatant and in your face if you've ever taken a statistics class and read a graph then you can very easily see this is that the effects of co2 on the temperature is not long-lasting whatsoever when the co2 emissions go up the temperature goes up however when the co2 uh, emissions drop the temperature drops as well there's, there's no long-lasting effects of co2 on the temperature and that is why the narrative has switched from global warming to climate change because in america we have dropped our emissions and uh, those temperatures in some of those places are getting lower but some places are upping their emissions and those temperatures are getting higher so you can't say across the board that the entire globe is warming obviously that's why they transitioned so hard uh, this would also be because the, another reason the rhetoric has changed is because the earth naturally warms and cools itself the temperature is always changing uh, there's cores that they've drilled in Antarctica that kind of prove this point and all sorts of stuff that you can right. pull up. The, the best point that I always make for, well, there's two. I can give actually two real quick, very fast. Two really great points you can ask people that are diehard into climate change and global warming. Number one, if the world was going to end in 100 years or whatever, you know, if, if the seas are going to rise gonna 12 two, years. Yeah, or yeah, like some people think like 15, but if the sea's going to rise a foot in the next, you know, 15 years, 100, I don't even care, honestly. Right then, and most of the time, those people are the, also the people that believe that like all the corporations are evil, and you know they hate capitalism and all that kind of stuff. Eat the first the question you can ask them is, well, um, do you think banks are always looking in their best interest for them? Right, like they don't care about the individual person or the small business. They're gonna be like, yeah, that makes sense to me. It's like, okay, so if that's the case, then why the heck would any of these banks? give out loans or mortgages for properties in places like Florida or why would, or you know beachfront properties if the world's going to be if that part of the world's going to be underwater in 15 50 years 100 years whatever why the heck would they do that because they're just going to be losing money on their investment right and they're you know they might give you some uh, weird response to that but like it's a really good question to ask and make them think and the second point is um Whenever someone is diehard into climate change, be like, do you believe that the earth naturally warms and cools itself? Now, if they actually have a brain on their head, they're going to be because in, you know, this is taught in science class or whatever mm. you want to call it. They're going to say yes. You know, we know there have been the ice ages. Age. We know there have been warmer periods due to things like Isaiah said, like, you know, like the, the ice caps. It's like, OK, so if you agree with that, then you agree that we might not know 100 percent if humanity is the sole cause for the climate in, or, you know, the, the global temperature changing, right? That the earth naturally cools itself. It naturally warms itself. We can't say 100% for sure that we are the sole cause, right? Or we are the main cause. So that is a good way to take the offensive um, on climate change. Mm -hmm. Those are good questions to ask to get people thinking for sure. So let's move on to point three. And this one has become one of my favorite points. And this is where we get into the policy 
and the regulations surrounding the oil and gas industry and how Biden himself has been detrimental. Uh, you see that Biden and his administration lately, Saki and all of the likes, the cronies, they've been trying to shift the blame on the gas prices and the uh, oil, the, the price of a barrel of oil. They've been trying to shift that blame and say, well, at first it was Trump's fault, and now it's Putin's fault. But and, like a week ago, yeah, it was the corporation's ago, fault. A week ago, it was the corporation's fault. So the blame keeps shifting here, but it can really all be pegged straight to Biden, and we're about to get into how. So the third point that they make is that Biden is currently overseeing 9,000 oil permits. So obviously and that means that he's the, he's, yes, he's the, best, the best president on oil. on oil, even though we don't like oil. Makes and, no sense. Anyways. Uh, Biden himself <laughs> Biden himself has addressed this and used this talking point to say that, listen, there's 9,000 oil permits, and those those permits could be producing yesterday, today, they could be producing tomorrow. He said that himself, and uh, so let's just get into this. First of all, it is very hypocritical of the left to say that because the other two points that we address say that they want to shift from oil and natural gas into – some renewable energies. Right, like why, why are they proud of it? Yeah, so now they're sitting here gloating, and they're proud that their president, the most popular president in American history, is one of the best on oil and gas. And so let's just point out the hypocrisy first, but then also let's look into this and let's realize that the devil is in the details when it comes to these uh, 9,000 oil permits. So Mike Summers, the CEO of the American Petroleum Institute, uh, he says that the Biden administration is misusing facts when they quote this 9,000 permits talking point. Uh, a quote from him from Bloomberg.com says, just because you have a lease doesn't mean that there's actually oil and gas in that lease. There has to be a lot of development that occurs between the leasing and then ultimately permitting for that acreage to be productive. I think that they're purposefully misusing the facts here to advantage their position. And if you look and listen to our sister episode, uh, we talked about this a little bit about what goes into um, actually what these companies have to do to be able to produce this oil. Right, like it's not just, hey Jimmy, let's get out there with a you know a drill and go get some. Like it takes millions of dollars to get into this business. Anyways, yeah. So uh, let's name just a couple of those things. What happens between the lease and the actual production of the oil? So. Um, one thing that we have to do is we have to contract the oil rigs. We have to build a sufficient inventory of permits before the rigs are even contracted. Uh, we have to put a drilling plan together. We have to secure rights of way from both state and private landowners to be able to use the land to drill. And we have to determine, based on the market, whether or not it would be worth the time and money uh, to even go forth with this plan. Uh, the way that uh, the domestic and global approach is to oil and gas production. Would it be worth the time? So what is the administration? What is the domestic stance towards uh, this industry? Well, Secretarial Order number 3395, remember that. If anyone ever asks you uh, what kind of policy has Biden put into place, uh, remember two things that we're going to get into, Secretarial Order 3395 and Executive Order 14008. So this 3395 was enacted January 20th, 2021, the day that Joe Biden stepped foot into the White House. And it basically put a suspension of powers on granting rights of way. Uh, it put a suspension on approving plans of operation or to amend existing plans of operation. And the suspension of power to issue any onshore or offshore fossil fuel 
authorization saying that no one could drill onshore or offshore. So it was a temporary measure, and a lot of people, when you say that, if they know what you're talking about, they will tell you that it was a temporary measure and that it has expired. But it was later revisited and actually extended in order to provide time for this executive order, 14008. So 14008, also known as tackling the climate crisis at home and abroad, if you look into that, we get into Section 205, which calls for a carbon pollution-free electricity sector no later than 2035. Uh, Section 208 uh, says, to the extent consistent with the law, the Secretary of the Interior shall pause new oil and natural gas leases on public lands or in offshore waters. It put a pause on the leases for these production companies. Section 209 says, um, the director of the Office of Management and Budget shall seek to eliminate fossil fuel subsidies from the budget requests for the fiscal year 2022. That is the year that we are in right now. Fiscal year 2022, they have dropped fossil fuel subsidies from the budget. Um, and this executive order 14008 does not provide any source of legal authority for any of these uh, mandates that it puts in. The only thing it does is it lists 21 different bureau like uh, bureaucracies. Uh, there's 21 different bureaucracies listed, and now these oil companies get to go and play pass around with these 21 different bureaus and get caught up in a bunch of red tape and regulation and never see the light of day. So then in response, the U.S. Department of the Interior, in response to 14008, um, said that they are currently overseeing, um, let's see, 26.6 million acres of land used for oil production with nearly 96,100 wells. And they say that nearly 53% of that is unproductive. And because 53% of it is unproductive, uh, they're now saying that they need to seize it for other public goods, such as um, uh, shared public lands like conservation or recreation. Um, but that just goes to show that those 9,000 leases does not always mean that there's production right. there. Literally over half of it is not even – there's no production. Exactly. So, so you, could, you could basically just slash that number in half already. Yes, and also in response, they increase the rental rates for future leases. So it's going to cost these production companies more to be able to get in there. Which will affect the price because the more, they, the more cost they have, the more it's going to cost for the oil. And they've called for a modernization on the federal oil and gas program. What does modernization mean? Modernization, as we've talked about, means getting rid of oil and gas. And their policy shows that they are wanting to do this, they're wanting to implement this, and they're wanting to get rid of future leases, tighten restrictions, and move towards renewable energies at a rate that is way too early. So with all that put in place, let's see – what would happen? Let's speculate. Which for is a, a lot. Yeah. That is so much it put in place. It basically to hurt ties companies. their hands. Yeah. There's nothing they can do at this point. However, but, but Biden is the best on oil and gas, even yeah. though we hate it, obviously. Absolutely. Because Jin Saki said so. Look at the policy. Yeah. Yeah. See, most people aren't going to look into this, but that's why we're looking into it for you so that you have the facts at your disposal. Absolutely. So, what if these oil companies get their hands on some gas? What if they're able to get in there, drill, get their product? and actually try to put it to market. Well, subsidies have been stripped, so there's no support for them from the federal government as of this year. There's been a pause put on the Keystone XL pipeline, as we talked about in the sister episode. 
Right, and, and, so, and, it, and it literally, it's been abandoned by the yeah, company. It's, it's been abandoned. The Keystone no XL longer, pipeline is no longer a thing. It is no longer even in thought. Um, so it would make it extremely more costly and dangerous to uh, transport. transport and to uh, actually be put into use, which you would see those prices. Those prices would be passed on to you at the pump and in other places that oil is used for. As we know, it's not just natural. It's not just gasoline. Gasoline, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> Well, that's a big use for it. It is. So uh, domestic policy leans in the direction of subsidizing renewables, as we can see in the policy. Uh, this would imply higher prices that would be associated with uh, oil and liquid natural gas. Uh, so um, that would be another downside to even if these companies could get their hands on it. Uh, and Biden prefers OPEC oil over domestic oil anyways. So even if we were to get some domestic oil, Biden would go overseas, as they always do, to try and outsource our products here at home. Uh, he's just not competent. He's just not smart. He doesn't want to support American business, despite what he says at the State of the Union. And he has recently actually turned to Venezuela to ask for help. Right. Our great friend Maduro, right? Obviously. Absolutely. We just love what him a, so much. What a much. kind man. Yeah. What a great nation he's created. So, in conclusion... <laughs> in conclusion Sarcasm. <laughs> what should our stance be here uh, what is the dis the stance of deciding factor, and what should our stance be, uh, our look on this as a, I guess, side of politics that we should be um, attacking from? So we should try to mitigate the unreliable nature of renewable energy by using oil and gas until we can make a seamless transition fully and easily into those renewables and me personally, I think that's probably a hundred years down the line. All right. Uh, well, it's like why why transition whenever we can use stuff that was given to us, right? Why absolutely. not use it? Doesn't make any sense. So another thing that we can do is we can uh, use clean energy that we know actually works, such as nuclear and hydro. We should be using those and looking towards subsidizing those rather than going towards stuff that we know is completely ineffective. And it's going to help China. That honestly, if you're coming especially from like a nationalist perspective, right? That's if you one of the want, if you want, points. if you want to make China the world superpower, make the Chinese yen, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the world reserve currency. You love renewable energy. That is. Um, wind and solar because uh, – well, and electric cars because that makes China rich, baby. That makes helps our powerhouse. economy. Right. And they've, they've already passed our economy anyways, so why not just give them a little bit more help? But another thing that we need to do on the right is we need to completely obliterate the narrative that oil and gas are going to be the, the death of the world. Oil and gas are not as harmful to the environment as we are made out to believe – and it will be okay to use them until we can, like I said, easily and seamlessly transition to those renewable energies. So another thing uh, that we talked about in the sister episode, we need to reduce the red tape and regulation. We need to get rid of Secretary Order 3395. We need to get rid of Executive Order 14008, which grant, uh, given that um, Trump or another Republican has put in in 2024, that should and I believe will happen. We need to unleash the American energy sector. We need to continue to subsidize oil and gas as a viable and useful form of energy. We need to buy American oil and gas and not turn to OPEC. We need to make it easy to transport, a.k.a. get started on the Keystone XL pipeline, because it will help lower the cost, and Americans will see the benefits of that. So, with all this said, Biden could lower the price of gas with the stroke of a pen 
but he simply will not. The only reason for the high gas prices is because of Biden's incompetency. Uh, it's not the Russian invasion. It's not Trump. This is Biden's disaster, and it quite literally began on the day that he was inaugurated, January 20th, uh, 2021, as soon as he stepped into office with the signing of Secretary Order 3395. It was on Inauguration Day that this crisis began, and it is his fault. It is nobody else's. So, with that being said, do you have any closing words? No. I mean, after especially hearing about uh, the 3395 and the exe- uh, the executive order, um, what was it, 40018 or something 14008. like that? 14008. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, it's very clear that the reason why our gas prices, especially in America, right, um, according to, like, even the WTI benchmark, which is the West Texas Intermediate Benchmark, um, being at prices like $109, uh, because our oil is still lower priced here than around the world. Um, like, while it's only, like, you know, 419 430 where we live, it's way higher in other places across the world, because while OPEC is selling for, like, 130 bucks. Uh, here at home, it's only selling for like $109, $110, which shows, right, that it is totally possible for us as Americans, despite the regulation that we already have in place, um, despite, you know, like the labor, the more labor we have to pay, it is possible for Americans to produce at a lower price, but we are being handicapped solely by this administration because of the policies that they create and that Biden could get rid of them and unleash the American energy sector if he were to get rid of these EOs. So, yeah, without, with that, I, I, uh, I'm pretty much done. All right, well, thank you guys for tuning in, listening, and watching as this, uh, this set of sister episodes is our first recorded, video-recorded episodes of the American Deciding Factor podcast. So thank you guys for tuning in. We hope you learned something with this. And uh, remember that liberty necessitates continuous action.